I remember thinking to myself, you know, why do I have to view prison as punishment? Why can't I look at this as a place where I can remake myself and make a legacy for myself in here, even if I'm supposed to die? Like, and I realized, wait, I can. And just that small, subtle shift in thinking made all the difference in the world. That morning, the sun was coming over the hills. I was able to feel the warmth of it. I remember on the individual blades of grass, the tiny drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. And I tell everybody, you know, it probably been chirping my whole prison term, but I never heard it. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. My guest today is Quan Huyn, who spent 22 years in and out of correctional institutions and was paroled from a life sentence in 2015 for shooting and killing a man in a gang-related incident in Hollywood, California. Today, he is the post-release program manager of Defy Ventures, a nonprofit helping those with a criminal past transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. He received the Peace Fellowship Award for his work with Alternatives to Violence Project, and his new memoir is Sparrow on the Razor Wire. Welcome, Quan. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ronit. I'm so glad you're here, and especially today, which is the actual day of your book release. Congratulations. Thank you. For listeners who have not yet acquainted themselves with your memoir, you spent many, many years in a California prison. So can you talk a little bit about the crime and the aftermath? Sure. Um, So to let you know, your listeners know, I've done about 22 years of my life in and out of uh, correctional institutions. And in 1999, I shot and killed another human being in a drive-by shooting and was given, I was tried for the death penalty ultimately found guilty of second-degree murder and given a 15-year-to-life sentence in the state of California, which at the time was basically the same as a death sentence because California had not paroled a single life-term prisoner since like 1977. Mm -hmm. So going in, you knew that you might not ever get out? Yeah, I knew if my appeals didn't go through, like I held on to the hope, well, what if my appeal or what if they changed the law about the felony murder rule? Because they found me guilty under the felony murder rule, which ironically has been overturned uh, recently, I think like within a year or two. But they, mm-hmm. that's how I was found guilty under that law. But yeah, I felt, you know what, I'm dead. I'm going to die in here. And so I'm just going to live the way I want. You know, was there any sense for you of inevitability when you were incarcerated? Was there any part of you that felt like, obviously, this was going to happen to me? I remember some of the older guys when I had done a couple of my violations, they tried to sit down and talk to me and say, hey, you know what? You need to look at the way you're looking at life. Like you're so immersed in this gang and this, and this gang lifestyle. And it's funny, ironically, because these are also guys that have been in and out of system but they told me like you have a chance to you know change your life because they were all these guys were all headed up to prison with life sentences and they told me if you don't change this you're also going to be in our shoes you're also going to come back with a life sentence mm-hmm. and I was like no nah, you guys don't know what you're talking about I'm never going to get busted again um, <laughs> but then yet there was a part of me like I also want to be in this place of 
yes, this is a guy, a lifer. Like, you know, it, it was, it's twisted, it's distorted, but that is just kind of the way I thought. Like, I want to gain this status without mm-hmm. having to, to serve the life sentence. And, you know, there, everyone has a complex story. You didn't start out in life as a criminal. You started out as a kid who moved as a baby to Utah after being born in Vietnam. And it sounds like your early life had a lot of difficulty in terms of adjustment and feeling other when you got to Utah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I was born in Vietnam and we came to the United States before we lost our country, right before we lost our country and we settled in Provo, Utah. I grew up in Provo, Utah and, you know, our family is Vietnamese and we're also Roman Catholic and 99% of our neighbors and peers were white and probably 99% of them were also Mormon. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of people in Utah are kind and gentle, but I did experience what I've now come to understand as racism. I remember going to the gas station with my uncle and people coming by and said, go back to your country, get out of here, gooks. So I remember that. Then I also remember one of the most significant events for me as a boy. I think I was like seven or eight. My brother was five or six and we loved to play with our GI Joes in the summertime. So in the summers in Utah, when the snow melts, then it comes down and have, we have these streams and me and my brother would love to walk in the streams. We make these rafts out of our popsicle sticks and we put our GI Joes on it and let them float down. Like we call it the river and we watch our action mm-hmm. figures. So there were some older kids that were at the top of on a nearby fence. They seemed very far away, but they were throwing rocks down at us, told us to go back to our country, get out of there. And my brother and I did, you know, I guess we felt brave because I thought they were so far away they couldn't get to us. We said, go, uh, go ahead, uh, try to make this. So these kids hopped the fence and ran down and charged chase us. My brother and I ran up the other side and these older kids, they also had some adults. I don't know if it was like their uncles or their fathers, but there were adults on the fence cheering these kids on as they chased us down. And then I dropped some of my GI Joes. My younger brother stops to pick them up and to face these older kids and and basically to try to protect me, his older brother, and they punched him and shoved him to the ground and put dirt in his mouth. And while he's crying, I'm standing there watching and crying and, and I didn't do anything. So we go home, his face filled with dirt and mud in his face and his mouth. And I told my father what happened. And my father tells me, you know, why did you let this happen to your younger brother? Like, where were you at? And I said, I just stood there. And he goes, how did you let this happen? Like, you have to protect your family. You have to protect them at all costs. You can't let this ever happen to your family. So I just felt so ashamed when that happened. And I felt like, oh my God, I let down my younger brother. I let down my family. And what made things worse is that my father never brought it up with again, which I'm sure because he looked at me, okay, this is a kid. And, but to me, in my Mm -hmm. mind, it was, he did bring it up because he always looked down on me and I had let the family down and I want to make sure I cannot let the family down. I have to live up to these expectations. Yeah. You know, it's, I remember reading that scene and, and I can see almost your mind at work as such a young boy. And I also understand what you're talking about when you say the silence from an adult or a parent. For me, at least the interpretation is that when they don't remark on something or elaborate on it, when they don't, you know, offer more of their insight into it, I think kids can often fill in the blanks themselves and it's in many times incorrect. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And yeah, and your father played a really important role to you in your early years. You have a scene where you're driving with him on these early morning trips to help other Vietnamese friends and family because he understood English. He's interpreting for them at the DMV, right? Yeah. So my brother, my father worked in the nearby coal mines, but he also created the Vietnamese Refugee Association. And that was just to help Vietnamese refugees adjust to their new homeland or new homeland. So mm-hmm. on the weekends, that was my dad's thing was he would drive to like neighboring states, Wyoming, Colorado, whatever. And I got to go with him on these road trips. So as a young boy, you know, of course, I, I love being able to get to spend time with my father. But then I also could not understand why the concept of why he was doing this and wasn't getting paid for it. Hmm. Yeah, it wasn't until years later, I said, okay, I see why my father enjoyed this and why he loved to give back to the community. But as a boy, I, I didn't understand. All I cared about though was, yeah, I get to spend time with my dad and we'd be on these road trips and I could have like, you know, all my life's questions answered. Right. And so he was communicative with you on those trips? Oh, yes, absolutely. He was loving. He was, um, yeah, I, I had never felt so safe. Those were like my fondest memories of a little boy is being just with my father on those road trips. It's like, you know, my brother and sister weren't there. So I basically had my father to myself. So as a little kid, I'm very selfish. Sure. Also the oldest son. I mean, you're the oldest son and you have this special position, right? Yeah. And so I felt that. And I also, as a reader, not knowing you other than from your book, I was really moved by the work that your father was doing. That unspoken, you know, not looking for any kind of you know, position or any kind of credit, but just going to help people because he could. Yeah. So you moved to California when you're a little bit older, and this is where your father gets sick. He actually got sick in Utah. Uh, I think he was diagnosed with leukemia first when I was about eight, Mm -hmm. right around that time. He was diagnosed with leukemia, but by the time I was 10, his condition was getting worse. So that's when we moved out here to Cali because his family was out here and he wanted to be closer to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he continue to work when you moved to California? How fast did his disease progress? It became where a revolving door for him to go in and out of the hospital. He feels better, then he starts to work for a little bit, and then he gets sick again, and then he has to check into the hospital, and they hold him again. Um, So it's, I don't remember much. It -hmm. was a very dark time for me. I just, I know he worked some here and there, and when he could, but yeah, we, we were living uh, in poverty by that time. You know, I know our family was on welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were in middle school at this time? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did your mom communicate with you kids at all during this time of your father's illness? Did she communicate with us regarding her my feelings? Yeah, her, no, her feelings. She did, my, mom, my mom is very stoic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best way to describe her is the only way she expresses that she loves us is through her cooking. <laughs> so, yeah, she's an amazing cook. But, yeah, I think for my mom, she was going through her own challenges. You know, like her family came from wealth in Vietnam and suddenly they've lost mm-hmm. their country. And now we're here and, you know, we're living in poverty and she's used to having things handed to her, things done for her. And now she has to uh, we're struggling here. So I think. On top of that, she did not have a great way of communicating to us. So things always, her words always felt harsh Mm. or they always felt like I did not measure up and I didn't, she was unhappy with me or unhappy with my siblings and I. Mm -hmm. And so all three of you, because you have a younger brother and then a younger sister, right? 
Yes. So none of you were getting that kind of support through words or physical contact. It wasn't like one of you was singled out. No, it was just like, that's just how my mom is. Like she never said, I love you. I remember seeing that on TV, even on watching like sitcoms and stuff. I, it's like, I, or I see like my friends in the neighborhood, the parents would say, I love you. And, and I just never felt like, I go, I wonder why my mom doesn't love us. Like she doesn't tell us. Mm-hmm. And that's another, I feel like place where for a child, it's a really open kind of empty place where your own feelings and interpretations can take over and you can start digesting what this means about you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can look now and I, I can just, does my mom love me? Absolutely. She does. Mm-hmm. Does she know how to express it? Not emotionally, not through words, you know, mm-hmm. but back then it just became its own interpretations and it became much worse in my mind than it really was. Mm -hmm. I think also parents in any era, if they lack resources emotionally or they don't have a history of understanding how to connect in ways that kids can feel, then they just don't really know to do it. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your communion day? Sure. Um, so my father's condition was, by that time, he'd been going in and out of the hospital quite often. And we're talking about my mom expressing herself emotionally. The one rare time that I saw my mom cry was probably right around our first communion coming up. She said the doctors told her that my father does not have long to live. And she, I remember we pulled up to the hospital. She sat in the car and she said it and she began crying. And that's the first time I had ever seen her cry and express that fear. And we didn't know what to do. I remember just putting my hand on her shoulder and I didn't know what else to do. Mm. And then, of course, you know, in my culture, okay, let's not talk about it. And let's go up there and put a brave face for your father. So don't cry. Don't say anything. And we went up and she said, you know, just make sure your dad is happy or we can't make your dad sad. And so, but in my mind, I knew my first communion was coming up and I had told myself, you know what? My dad is not going to die. God would not let that happen. So I'm going to make sure I pray to God on the day of my first communion and ask him, you know, please let my father live and he'll have to listen to this prayer. So on the the day of our first communion, it was also Mother's Day that year. I woke up, I went to the bathroom and my younger sister pokes her head out of the shower and says, dad died last night. And that just crushed me. I didn't know what to think or say. But in my mind, I felt, crap, God killed my dad just so that he wouldn't have to grant my prayer because, you know, there must be something wrong with me. I must be a bad person in some way for God Mm -hmm. not to want to do this. And yeah, so that's what I, I had to leave. And so those years after losing your father, would you say you were stable in terms of your emotions and your position in life, or did things start to kind of escalate negatively? Well, they, I mean, after my father died, we never talked about it. So it was never once asked by my mom, how are you feeling? Like I look back now, we all needed some type of grief and loss counseling and we never received it. And we were never even aware of it. It was just like, we don't talk about it. No one's ever, we don't talk about dad's death. And just go on to live life. And it just seemed like just an empty shell of living. Go to church to pray each Sunday. And I'm thinking, what am I here for? Like, what am I here to pray? But I'm a, mm-hmm. uh, like, what good is this? How's, why is my life like this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mom began 
working full time. So me and my brother are just out, you know, go she, and all she expects is, okay, you're going to go to school. You're going to get good grades and hurry and grow up so that you could take care of the family because you're the firstborn. Mm-hmm. Did any of your extended family or did you have any teachers who reached out at all to you during this time to kind of let you know you were okay or not alone? I'm sure there may have been some. I don't remember much. I know, you know, like I became resentful at some of my father's side of the family because it didn't feel like they were reaching out or that they had reached out enough. Mm. Of course, like I understand that, like everybody was grieving my father's death in some way. You know, they were grieving their brother's death. Mm. And of course, many people don't know how to reach out or how to help others mourn. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it wasn't until, what, 25, 30 years later when I'm doing a life sentence in prison and I began to grieve my father's death for the first time and understand understand and mourn him is where I got greater understanding of why other people did not reach out or because they didn't also know how. Mm-hmm. Do you know when the point came when you started taking a turn to crime and violence, like when that became something you really embraced? Oh, well, I, 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 there wasn't one, one point, like suddenly if the light switches, you know, um, it just, I just get, I have friends in school and then um, one of my friends, he had older brothers who had cars and they used to drive us around. And then uh, one of the, I remember one of the first times that I got involved with any type of crime was the first time we broke into a car at night and getting in it. And I think the first time I went inside that car, there was a, a Nintendo games or something. And I had a Nintendo game set. So I took that and I liked it. And then <laughs> it became more steeped into it where the first time we got a wallet and there were credit cards. And then his older brothers took us out to eat with the credit cards and, and bought us food and bought us more Nintendo games. And, you know, I have this thing where I love beef jerky. So they bought me a whole thing of beef jerky. And <laughs> so then it just gets more and more steeped into it where next thing I know, I remember as uh, by the time I'm 16 and then I have my own car, it was normal for me. Okay, I want a nice Alpine radio. And we go and try to break into cars and, okay, I'd like to stick this one in my car. And then I have a whole bunch of them under my bed and my mom sees it and says, oh, what is that? I said, oh, I'm fixing my uh, car radios for some of my friends. And she told me, oh, you're such a smart kid. Not <laughs> ever knowing that I'm already stealing and breaking into cars and hanging out with guys that were already doing bad stuff on the streets. And then, you know, it's by that time, suddenly my group of friends were already, you know, going out to house parties. And suddenly we get into fights with other kids. And then it was, there was, a big conflict between us and some local skinheads that, you know, and of course, because I faced racism in Utah, I always had this chip on my shoulder for people Mm -hmm. that were racist. And then, so I, of course, never understanding at the time was also racist against whites or just Mm -hmm. like any, any type of white person that expressed any type of racial views. Then I looked at that. Okay. This is who I have to fight with, or this is who we have to challenge. Mm -hmm. So then I remember one time when one of my friends, one of my close friends had a gun. He, he got a gun off the streets. It was a, a small 22 caliber handgun. And uh, we, we had gone to a party and like we were surrounded by a bunch of these other kids that we were about to fight. 
we were totally outnumbered, but my friend pulls up the gun and everybody ran. So then suddenly I feel this first sense of power. Oh, and then people talked about it at school. Like, oh man, those guys don't mess with them. They have a gun. That group, Quan and Tommy, like my brother's name is Tommy and his friends, mm -hmm. they have guns. And suddenly it just added to this allure. And like, we never shot the gun. We never pulled the gun out. But I like that sense of recognition. And suddenly I'm into a different path already, but not even realizing it. Mm -hmm. And then it was one evening I was working at Subway. My brother comes in with some of my friends and said, these skinhead kids had called our house and threatened to kill my mom and my sister. And he said he knew who they were. So they asked if I knew where, if I could find out where he lived. So I asked my coworker, hey, do you happen to know where um, Gumby, that's the name, that was the nickname of like one of the skinheads, lives? And she said, yeah. So she drew us a map. I gave the map to my brother and my friends. And they said, okay, we'll be back tonight to pick you up and we'll just go by, we'll find the house and we'll shoot it up. And yeah. I said, okay. They didn't come back that night. I drove home and when I got home, my brother was laying in bed terrified. And he said, like one of my friends, they, I guess they went to a local arcade to play video games. Mm -hmm. So what, my brother was 15, I was 17 at the time. There, my brother was in there playing video games. They were in there. And then uh, one of my friends finds somebody else that knew where the skinhead lived. They got him in the car and he pointed out the house. My friend decided to go up to the door, knock on it. They opened the door. He ran inside and shot three people in there. Wow. Yeah. So With your brother, was your brother my there My brother too? was in the car. My brother was in the mm -hmm. car. I was still at work. And my brother was, I remember that night when I came home, he was like scared. He's uh, he like, they shot somebody. Mm -hmm. I looked at the helicopters and we saw the helicopters flying nearby. A couple of weeks later, they came and arrested all of us, including me. And that was my first arrest. Went into juvenile and I carried this chip on my shoulder. Like, why was I arrested? I didn't have anything to do with it. And they said, well, because I had asked my coworker for the map. Um, mm. And I was part of this conspiracy already. We knew we had a gun, you know? And yeah. so, but then inside juvenile hall, guys around me that knew my story said, oh, you shouldn't have been arrested. That's not fair. This is how the criminal uh, American justice system screwed you over. And I held on to that. Already angry with God and my mom and my dad and the world. This just added to it and I just took on these beliefs and this is where I began to immerse myself in, you know, the prison and the jail culture and the gang culture. Mm -hmm. And that's basically where it all began, where I started a, a path of going in and out, in and out of correctional institutions. And when you think back to yourself back then... Who do you think you were really deep inside at that point? Like, who is the real Quan? Scared little boy. That's mm -hmm. the scared little boy. That probably the thirteen-year-old boy that still had not grieved his father's death, or maybe even the ten-year-old boy that was still scared. Like I, that wanted to just find something in my life and unsure of what it was. But yeah, I was mm -hmm. absolutely a scared little kid. But I had to put up this portrayal of I'm not scared because I don't want to get picked on and. And I have to be accepted and I want to look cool. And I see that people in here are accepted because of violence. So maybe I have to be part of the bullying too, so that I'm not picked on. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this escalated. And then by the time you're, is it 23, you actually shot your gun and killed someone. Yes. So it escalated because after that, I, we ended up giving, ended up getting for my first arrest seven years. I did two and a half out of it and I got out. But like what, two and a half years from fresh removed from high school, I didn't have, I don't have any of my friends from high school are now in college or working. And 
and people that I ran into in the streets knew that I had been to jail. So people were, I think, were always a little fearful to ask me. And then part mm -hmm. of me in my head, it's like, okay, now I'm a convicted felon. I can't get a real job anymore. What are people going to think? So friendships that I had made in the county jails and juvenile hall that wrote to me after they went home and we stayed in contact with, those were my peers now. And those were who I started to hang out with. And those are the ones that later on, that's where we formed our gang. Mm -hmm. Then by that time, it's like our group of friends runs into another group of guys from a different gang. And, but it still had the same jail mentality of we're protecting each other as a group. And so we get into fights with other groups. Then there's then suddenly other groups bring guns and we have to get guns. And suddenly they're known as this group and we're known as this group. And it just evolves. And now I'm immersed in this group of guys that we call ourselves a gang and people mm -hmm. hear about us, which makes me feel like, oh, wow. Like when I go into prison, like, oh, or when I go into the county jails on a parole violation, oh, who do you hang out with? What group are you from? And oh, this is the group we are. Oh, okay. Oh, we heard about you guys. So it just becomes <laughs> more of, okay, I'm recognized. People know about You have us. an identity. Yeah, I have some sense of identity for once in my life. Whereas in Utah, I didn't feel like I fit in. And then even moving up to California for the first time, when I went to school with other Vietnamese kids for the first time as a little boy, they're asking me where, how old I am, what's my Vietnamese age, and me not understanding, what do you mean Vietnamese age? And, and then suddenly these are kids that had just come over to the United States. Their parents had falsified their ages just so they could go back a couple of years to learn the English language. So these kids are mm -hmm. older than me. They're more emotionally and physically mature, and they didn't speak English well. I could not speak Vietnamese well, so they're calling me whitewash. They're calling me. Um, mm. So I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere I went. Um, so that's I know that's why in the gang, inside, hanging out with my homeboys, I felt this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is what mm -hmm. I feel like. This is a group that accepts me for who I am. And so that's why you write that early on in the book, you have this quote was, I had yet to kill someone and wanted to be successful tonight. And so... Was this sort of just this idea that you were all in at this point and you just needed to get it over with already? Well, yeah, I think by that time, because part of like going in, in and out of the California Youth Authority and then getting out and then like, so people hear, okay, this guy's gone in and out. And then by up to that time, I had been involved with numerous shootings already. So people knew, okay, Quan is very violent. He's down. He's, he's a gangster. Mm-hmm. And he'll pull the he'll pull the gun first. He's always the first to shoot. And it became where people that's a, an identity that I like that I held onto that reputation. But because of it, it became self perpetuating where I had to continually to prove it to live up mm. to it. And in my mind, not to everybody else, but in my mind, I felt I have to show why I am the best at this. And mm -hmm. and people knew, oh, this is the one of the craziest gang members of this <laughs> gang. And Yes. So I want to show. So, yeah. So that night I go, okay, well, if this crazy gang member, well, who, who is he killed? And, and, and that's in my own mind asking these questions. It wasn't people on the streets. It was something that I created. And I wanted to fulfill that of being the most violent, ruthless gang member on the streets. Mm -hmm. And was there, a, would you say there was ever a moment where your reputation and what people thought of you as this ruthless gang member actually matched who you felt like inside? Well, I think I, by that time, I would have to say there was no awareness of another, like that, that this was a veneer or this is only to impress others. 
if that makes any sense. Mm. So it, yeah, it, was like, yeah. I, it was just in my mind, like, this is who I am. And it's this script that I had already begun to weave about my own sense of identity, that this is who I am, this is what I have to do, and this is how I have to do it. So mm-hmm. if ask me now, was there always this young boy that was still trapped inside? Yes, but he was probably shoved into a dark corner and wasn't even thought about. It was just, I don't touch on that part of it because I built this other identity that doesn't match that over there. And I'm going to fulfill this identity. So you get arrested and you are 23 when you go, you begin your long, your long incarceration. Yeah, I was arrested and they tried me for the death penalty, but because I got rid of evidence and I had coached witnesses and I lied at trial, I was only found guilty of second degree murder and given a 15 year to life sentence, which at the time was the same mm-hmm. as a death sentence anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I lied on the stand and said I wasn't the shooter, uh, so I didn't do it. And, you know, that's what I held on to. So when I went into prison, I was okay, I'm, I have a life sentence now, I'm going to die. So I'm going to live the way I want to live. Mm-hmm. And how far into your time in jail do you feel like something inside of you began to change? Uh, you know, there were little moments here and there throughout my sentence, especially even early on, but I just never, you know, like there's little things that, that can give you a little small chance of hope, but then I choose to go in a different route. And I understand now, like through my journey in prison, it was just a continued series of choices that got me to be capable of murder. And then even after that, it was a continued series of choices that got me to spiral even worse to become even more immersed in the subculture of prison and take on all of that. It wasn't until about the 10th year of my prison sentence where, you know, like several things had happened where my niece was born, my brother's daughter, and I saw her picture for the first time and saw, my goodness, this is a spitting image of like my brother when he was a kid. And it just took me back to my childhood. And I'm asking myself, how did I get here? Like, what happened? And then um, Mm -hmm. my grandfather, my father's father passes away. And I hear about that. And then I think about my own life. Like, you know, I'm 36 now around that time, 35, 36. Like, what have I done with my life to be in here with a life sentence? Mm -hmm. And then I started asking myself about my father, thinking about my father. He died when he was, what, 37, 38. And I thought about Look at mm. what my father did, I can, and I contrasted that with the pain and the death and the destruction that I had done in my time on Earth, and it was sobering. But yet, I was still okay. I knew that, but how do I find my way out? And I didn't know how to find my way out. But I've always been a bookworm, and I've I've been known to read like five or six books simultaneously. And I so what I did was I um was reading like books on business and entrepreneurship and autobiographies of people with businesses and things like that. So it's like one book leads me to another, to another. And then suddenly I stumble on books about the saints and I became fascinated with different saints and how they left legacies, but particularly uh, fascinated with stories of the saints of how each of these people had also had failures in their lives and also had things wrong and made terrible choices, but yet they went on to leave legacies. And so it began to open up my mind like, wait, 
why can't I also do this even if I'm supposed to die? And you know, there there were, and then at the same time, like there were other people suddenly, you know, they say when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And mm-hmm. suddenly, like you know, there were there are people that came into my life during that time, like other prisoners, like that began to like open up my eyes, like begin to open up and mentor me and ask me like mm-hmm. what do you think like who are you really and do you really believe that you can go home and things like that and i'm reading books and practicing things and those little things right there started to contribute to it and there was one day on the prison yard i stood there at the fence and i remember thinking to myself you know why do i have to view prison as punishment why can't i look at this as a place where i can remake myself and make a legacy for myself in here, even if I'm supposed to die. Like, and I realized, wait, I can. And just that small, subtle shift in thinking made all the difference in the world. That morning, the sun was coming over the hills. I was able to feel the warmth of it. I remember on the individual blades of grass, the tiny drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. And I tell everybody, you know, it probably been chirping my whole prison term, but I never heard it. But that day I heard it. Mm -hmm. And from that day, prison no longer felt like this cold, harsh, ugly place. But it became for me a place where I could remake myself. It became a place of just such like tranquil beauty for me where I looked at this as, okay, these are other human beings on their journey. Some of them much further ahead of me, some of them not even awakened yet. But that's how I looked at each day for myself. So when I wake up, it was with this mindset, like with curious wonder, what does the world have in store for me? What lesson does God have out there for me? And what can I discover about myself? And then approach my day each day. And then as I'm reading, suddenly I pour myself into books on personal development and mindfulness and other things. And I tell myself, I want to make myself a better person. How do I practice it? So then I read something in a book and I go, I, okay, I'm going to practice how to communicate effectively, how to communicate nonviolently, how to not respond harshly. And then at the end of the night, I have my journal and I begin this practice. Okay, what did I do well for myself? And I intentionally did that because I knew like over the years, yes, no matter how harsh or how critical I was of others, inside myself, in my mind, I was 10 times more harsh to myself. So understanding that and Mm -hmm. and making space for myself to give myself credit, it began to work and build up my own warped sense of self-esteem where I go, wait, you know what? I do do good things. I do have some sense of worth. And then also asking myself in my journals, the intentional word, where did I fail at? Understanding that word that does not mean it does not define me, but where can I improve and what can I do the next day? So then I looked at that. So each day I could go back, okay, I failed and it's okay. And I can laugh at myself and I can go back the next day. This is what I want to do. And this is how I want to approach it. And suddenly the world Mm -hmm. inside prison transformed for me. And I no longer felt locked up. I felt free and I felt like liberated, if it makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, do you tell incarcerated people something specifically now that helps them? Like, what do you tell incarcerated people? who are not yet where you are? Well, I know, because I, when I go back into prison now and guys find out that I had a life sentence, usually 
And they asked, okay, well, I'm about to go to the board. I'm going to say this. What do you think? Or this is what actually happened. And I hear how they're describing what happened to them or things. So I could usually, within a couple of minutes, you know, it's, I be, it became a place for me where in prison, within like two or three minutes, if I just let somebody talk and I really am present and listen, it's interesting the words of what people use and how they describe themselves and how they describe things that happen. It gives me a really good glimpse of how they see the world and their place in it. So within a couple of minutes after they're talking, I could hear, okay, this person still comes from the mindset of victimhood or they're still blaming. This person still has mm -hmm. not understood what personal responsibility is or has not understood where choice or intentional choice can give them freedom. And I can't just tell them, oh, this is what you need to do because I just realized in prison, people learn best when I was in a group, when I share of my own vulnerability. So it was never for me to come out of place, oh, this is what you need to do to make yourself a better person. I usually come out with, hey, I remember when I used to think mm -hmm. like this way and this is what I thought and this is what happened, but then this happened to me and I went down this route and this is how I see things now. And people would always come up to me after mm -hmm. and tell me uh, what you said today really touched me. I identify with that. So that was actually also the way I tried to write my book is like not from a place like here, let me be the teacher, but more like, hey, this is the journey I was right. on and this is what I saw. So this is what I offer up to you. And hopefully there's something there for you for your own journey in this. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not like a prescription. You're not preaching you're revealing yourself and using it as an example. Yeah. It's interesting. It makes me wonder, do you think the you who were back then would have listened or gotten something out of the you who is I you now? I think perhaps if, because like I've been asked before, like, okay, what would you say to a 13-year-old boy that just lost his father? And my answer would be, I wouldn't say anything to tell him how to feel, I would ask him how he is feeling or I would give him space to begin to grieve or mourn instead of telling him, oh, call me if you need help or call me if you need anything. I'm here for you. But more like, hey, how are you feeling about this? Tell me what you like about your father and just begin that grieving process. So I think for me to be able to tell my young self, my young self would not have listened. Mm -hmm. But if somebody had come and shared with me their own journey and became vulnerable. And, and I say that all well-knowing, it would not be something where you could just solve for that kid in one day or even a month. Mm -hmm. They might have to be building a relationship and becoming a support system and to be there and to actually mentor and guide and to invest and nurture this person. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's not one single thing that could have made the difference for you. No, I don't think so. I mean, I would have loved it to, to have somebody come and share with me, but I don't think that would have been ultimate. But okay, oh, suddenly someone comes out of the blue, it's a savior and he went to prison. And he, mm. I know full well, I would not be able to save some kid that's on a wrong path, but could I be there to really invest in support and try to help gently guide them or have them to realize their choices Then that to help them in that way? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that a little bit of what Defy Ventures is? Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. Yeah. Defy Ventures is a nonprofit that helps men and women with criminal histories transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. Although entrepreneurship is what the program is known for, about 60 to 70 percent of the program is actually a lot of character and personal development. So 
Yes, I would have to say there is a lot of that in the program. But like I said, it goes back to, is this person ready? Are they at a place where that they're ready to become a student yet to take on some of these teachings? Mm -hmm. So yes, I mean, it is a seven month program that begins on the inside and we continue to help in their reentry journey once they come home. So what's your relationship like with your brother and your mother now, and even your sister? How did they handle the fallout from your incarceration and, and how, what is the feeling like at home now? Um, so my mother and I are extremely close. I think we became very close, particularly their last five years before I was paroled. I was able to call home and talk to her and, but more importantly, just listen to her. Uh, I remember in my younger years when mm. she would tell me, or just basically like tell me what's going on with her and her life. And especially when she started to share problems or challenges, I always felt I have to fix this. I have to solve it instead of just being able to listen. And, and it wasn't until years later when I'm listening to my mom, I realized my mom's not asking for my advice. She doesn't need me to solve it. She only needs somebody to be there to listen to her. Mm. And I felt so, I would have to say, so ashamed of how I had treated her because, you know, here's a woman that, still, I think to this day, has not properly grieved her husband's death. I mean, she recently, she's read my book. She got up to chapter three, we're in up to the chapter only to when my father died. And she looked down and said, I can't read anymore. And she says, I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to this. Mm. I know this is a good book you've written, but um, let me just get a little bit more time in between to read it. She goes, because I'm afraid of what I'm going to read about your years in juvenile mm. hall and, and prison. So she goes, I don't know if I could get through this. So, you know, our, but our relationship now is like, hey, I can sit in her presence, listen to her and be absolutely content with even if she is not feeling OK or she's depressed about something. That's just her. She's depressed about it. And I could be here and just hold this space with her. Yeah. And you also understand why she may not read your book and you can find peace with it, too. Yeah. I mean, it's what does it say about me if I realize what she has to read the book or what does it say about my, my ego that I go, oh, man, she can't even read my own book. What does that say about me? So I, I look at where the book is there when she's ready to read it, then she's ready to read it. If it's not in it for her to read, then it's not in mm -hmm. it for her to read. Especially if a book is written for men that are doing life, long lifetime sentences in prison. So I shouldn't <laughs> place my expectations on her to read this. So. Right, yeah. right. And I'm sorry, I cut you off before about your brother and your sister. Oh, yeah. So my brother, and my sister, I mean, my sister recently read the whole book and she she texted me and said, like, you know, I don't remember. It was sad to hear her tell me dad did all this. Uh, how come I don't remember? And I go, what do you mean? Dad did do this. He did create the mm -hmm. Vietnamese Refugee Association. And she says my only memories of dad were already he was in the hospital. So it just I don't know. It was it broke my heart to see that my own little sister did not know my father for what he was, like the, the amazing man he was. She didn't know him, but she said she loved being able to read that part of it. You know, and in talking with both mm -hmm. my brother and sister, I realized, you know, I wasn't the only one that was grieving. They had to grieve their father in some way or another also, but I was always only caught up in my own interpretation of what happened. Mm -hmm. So. Are you proud of, of who you are? I would have to say yes. Proud of who I am today, not in a prideful way, but yes, I would have to say yes. 
Mm-hmm. That makes me happy to hear that. Please share with listeners where your book is and where they can learn more about you. Sure. My book is on Amazon. It's on Audible. They could find it, Sparrow in the Razor Wire. You can find it on Barnes & Noble. They, yeah, you can find it online. So you can find it there. Your listeners can also find me if they type in barrowintherazorwire.com, that's a lot easier. It will point right to my website, which is quanxhuin.com. But just in case your listeners are unable to spell my name correctly or whatever, because <laughs> it, it does get confusing for a, a lot of people. So yeah, they can find me there. And my social media is also, everything is at quanxhuin. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Great. I... I'm so happy that we got the chance to talk and I'm really looking forward to finishing your book. I'm already enjoying it. And I know there's a lot more to your story and I know that we could only cover a little bit about it, but I'm really grateful for getting a chance to know you a little bit. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for helping me spread this message. So thank you. Thank you for listening to, and then everything changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.